Hello, I'm Andres Correa, and this is the Park Street Insider Podcast. We've got some exciting episodes coming around the corner. Soon we'll be releasing some conversations with Lars Williams of Empirical and Mark Harmon of the Independent Distributor Network, so stay tuned for those. But today, we're talking about whiskey, because demand for whiskey around the globe is rising, and new producers with innovative styles continue to make their way into the category, at the point where even some familiar whiskey markets are taking part in the innovation. Today's Essential Talk features a look into what's happening in three key whiskey markets, the United States, Ireland, and Japan. You'll be hearing from Stephen Gould, the founder, CEO, and master distiller of Golden Moon Distillery. Stephen is a whiskey expert who travels the world educating, judging, and consulting within the whiskey category, in addition to running his own brand. Gould is a key member of the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission. You might recall from our episode with Dave Smith of St. George Spirits that this group submitted a formalized definition for the American single malt category to the United States, which is currently under review. In this talk, Gould takes a historical approach to examine the whiskey markets in the U.S., Ireland, and Japan, and gives an overview of where they're currently heading. He'll also explain why whiskey producers must continue to adapt and innovate, but also ensure to prioritize consumer education. Just a quick note. This episode was recorded live at Bar Convent Berlin. So without further ado, please enjoy this essential talk from Stephen Gould. My name is Stephen Gould, introduced earlier. Not only do I judge whiskey around the world and very often get judge world whiskeys as opposed to just judging scotch or American whiskeys, I also work as a consulting master distiller and I've worked in half a dozen countries. And what I've seen and what I've been involved in is some of the changes that are happening in the world and the world whiskey market today. What we're gonna do now is I'm gonna talk about three examples of what's going on in major whiskey markets around the world because they really are changes even just in familiar markets. So the first thing we're gonna talk about is what's going on with the American single malt category. And then we're going to talk about Irish whiskey, uh, and I've actually worked in Ireland. I was involved in building a very unique distillery, but I'll talk about several others. Then we're going to talk about some of the challenges that the Japanese have faced as they are victims of their own success, and we'll talk about how they've addressed that or how they're working to address that. And then we're going to talk about the opportunities and challenges of what is an amazing time to be a whiskey producer. You know, the world right now has an unprecedented demand for brown spirits and grain-based brown spirits, a.k.a. whiskeys that we've never seen before. Pre-1922, the one brown spirit that dominated the world was Irish whiskey. And there was other whiskeys, and they were usually locally produced, not exported, not transported. Um, a little brandy moved around the world, but if it was whiskey, it was usually made in your backyard unless it was going on British ships out of Ireland. So there wasn't a lot of necessary innovation because you were making whiskey off of what grain you had, where you were, you were selling it to a local market. You might have market differentiation within your own market, but because branding really didn't exist until the late 1800s and branded bottles really didn't come about until, you know, 1880, 1890, 1900, a lot of times when you would drink whiskey, wherever you were, it would be whatever the, the local store had in a barrel. And you would go and you'd get your bottle if you were lucky enough to have a bottle filled up. And so we started to see branding so that it was ways that people could differentiate. And market differentiation is really important. 
So in America, uh, obviously America is known for the classic American whiskeys, bourbon and pre-prohibition rye, now prohibition rye is becoming very popular again. But one thing that's always been made in America in some way, shape or form is American single malt. And that is because we've had breweries everywhere. And when you brew barley, you can then convert it into beer. And from beer, very easily, you can convert it into whiskey. Now, the reason that barley was not very popular pre-prohibition in the United States was that the predominant grain that was produced for whiskey was rye. Barley was made into beer. It's a quick-term product, and they would sell it. If they were going to make whiskey, it was mostly rye whiskey. After prohibition, a lot of those rye farmers stopped producing rye because the market disappeared and started producing feed grain. And the vast majority of that was what we call number two dent corn. And that is the base ingredient for most bourbons in the U.S. today. And so bourbon post-prohibition became king in the United States. And some of the most popular whiskey brands in the world, brands like Jack Daniels, which is not bourbon, or is it? And I know the Brown Foreman guys would kill me if they heard me say that, but it is a, a corn-based whiskey. Some of the most famous American whiskeys are very, very high in corn content made off of basically feed corn. So as the craft beer movement began to grow 30, 40 years ago in the United States, we started to see people going, well, what if we distill it? And so today, uh, there's an organization that many of us are involved in called the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission. It's a group of craft distillers and some larger distillers, all of whom are looking to market differentiate ourselves from bourbon and rye, and that are making what is not a clone of scotch, but is something that is a uniquely American, and I'm going to say style of whiskey, but in reality, because we all came out of the craft world, it's a family of styles of related whiskeys is a better way to describe it. And so, for example, we've got a gentleman sitting back here, Tom Mooney. Tom and his partner, Christian, uh, make American single malt. They make Westward whiskey. Their whiskey is very different from my whiskey, but both our whiskeys fit into what we are trying to get become law in the U.S. as a distinct definition. The U.S. government's going to come back and tell us whether they agree with us or not. But what we, the 120-plus distillers in the U.S. that are that are fairly aggressively pushing for our own differentiated category have asked the government for is that whiskey be entirely at one distillery in the United States. So when I'm making my whiskey, it has to be in one distillery. I can't blend whiskeys across two distilleries and call it a single malt. It has to be mashed, distilled, and matured in the United States of America. What that means is that I can go to a brewery down the street I can have them mash because a lot of smaller producers may not have their own mash equipment, bring it into my distillery, still distill it out, call it American single malt as long as it is mashed, distilled, and matured in the borders of the United States. Now that includes Canada, that includes Hawaii, that includes Puerto Rico, that includes Guam, that includes American Samoa. It has to be stored, aka matured, in oak containers not exceeding 700 liters. Now, if you read the other definitions of American whiskey, the word container is always used. It doesn't need to be a barrel. It can be a box. But what is notable here is it doesn't have to be new oak. Currently today in the United States, all designated whiskeys, so bourbon, rye, wheat, malt whiskey as opposed to single malt whiskey, has to be aged in new charred American oak. What we, the industry, have asked for with American single malt is the flexibility our competitors in other countries have to be able to use different types of casks to market differentiate again. X wine casks, casks made of wood that is used, it has previously had something else in it. 
or Newcast. And then last but not least, bottle it not less than 40% alcohol by volume. So that's what we've asked for. And the entire intent of this is so that predominantly smaller producers can offer our consumers a very defined choice of a whiskey that is not a bourbon and that is not a rye, but is still genuinely an American whiskey. And as I said, in amongst ourselves, we have a lot of variation. You look at my neighbor up the street, Alistair Brogan at Boulder Spirits Company. Alistair's a Scotsman. He imports his barley from Scotland. He mashes, however, like a brewer, not like a Scotsman. Little different style of mashing. He uses a Scottish built still, and he uses all Rocky Mountain runoff water. So it's really kind of a hybrid between the whiskey that he grew up with and where he lives today. So it's a unique product. Tom, on the other hand, you guys mash like brewers. You're using all locally sourced grain. You're using local Portland water. And your whiskey does not taste like Alex's whiskey at all. But it's still an American single malt. I, on the other hand, use all Colorado, Idaho, and Wyoming grown barley that's malted right down the street at Golden Malting. I use a atypical, totally unique yeast. I use a proprietary method of mashing that is closer to what they do in Scotland than it is to what most American brewers would do, but still is not the same. I actually build in inefficiencies to emphasize the, the, the malty character of the whiskey. And so while Tom's whiskey, Alistair's whiskey, and my whiskey all meet this legal definition, we all are market differentiated from each other. And that's beautiful because con consumers can then begin to explore the American single malt category, enjoy a whiskey that is very different in character than bourbon or rye, but still not have it commoditized. And that's hugely important because the mantra has to be, as the industry continues to grow, to be able to differentiate and stand out from your competitors. So next we're gonna talk about Irish whiskey. Now Irish whiskey is the fastest growing spirit category in the world today. Now, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, there were a handful of distilleries in Ireland Today, there are 40 plus producing and there are 60, I think 64 or 68, the last time I counted, permits that are either active or have been filed for. That is a huge amount of expansion in a very, very short period of time. But the reality is, despite the huge number of brands that keep coming on the market, most Irish whiskey is literally made at between five and six distilleries today. Everything else are small players or people that are laying down whiskey, waiting for it to be mature enough that they can sell it. Okay, most of that whiskey is characterized by a style that is light and easy drinking. So think, think Jameson. To quote John Teeling, who built Cooley, which is one of the biggest distilleries in Ireland, and who now owns Great Northern Distillery, people like light whiskey. And for mass consumer sales, light whiskey is king. But again, market differentiation. So what we're now seeing is we're seeing a growing number of Irish distillers that are looking back into history or looking elsewhere. And what I mean by that is pre-1922, pre-Irish independence and English embargo of Ireland, Irish whiskey ruled the world. It was the brown tipple of the British Empire and therefore the most consumed whiskey on the planet. But the Irish whiskey that ruled the world is not the Irish whiskey of today. It was a multi-grain whiskey, usually based on whatever grain the distillery could get. It was often triple distilled in no small part because there was such a high demand that they had to clean up that grain, clean up that spirit and make it palatable, which is why triple distilling became synonymous with Irish whiskey. It was also very often distilled and fermented on the grain as opposed to laudered, which is what is done in Scotland and what most American single malt producers do. 
So very different character of whiskey. And last but not least, almost always pre-1922, it was done in stills that were pot stills with worm tub type condensers. Now a worm tub type condenser is going to give you a much heavier spirit, a much more oily spirit. The still house that we just put in at Monster Oven or Church of Oak, if you guys follow rock and roll, this is Bono's project and I was one of two master distillers on it. You'll see three stills. You'll see a wash still, a hybrid, probably the only hybrid of its type in Ireland, and a boil ball style Scottish still, but it's going into a large silver thing that's actually a worm tub condenser. So this is the first worm tub that's been installed in Ireland in 85 years. Why? Because we're looking at making whiskeys that have a different mouthfeel, a different character, and a different taste than what the vast majority of Irish whiskeys today are. And if you look at distilleries like Boan, who's working with a man by the name of Fiona O'Connor, Fiona wrote a book called The Glass Apart, which is, a, is probably the best history of Irish pot still whiskey ever written. He's literally done a PhD in historical Irish whiskey. He's been working with Boan Distillery to literally recreate pre-1922 whiskeys. Why? Market differentiation. The same can be said of Blackwater Distillery, where John Wilcox, who's an American, is working to recreate old mash bills and to explore with different combinations of grain, again, to make something that isn't, not that there's anything wrong with it, that isn't Jameson. So what we're seeing is almost a category being developed inside of a category that's new and different and unique. Next, we have Japan. As we've talked about earlier, the Japanese have been making whiskey for a while and they've gotten an amazing reputation. A gentleman by the name of Takaturo-san went to Scotland in the early 1900s he came back to Japan in 1922. He wrote the first Japanese language book on Japanese whiskey. And as a result, the industry that he essentially started was very Scottish influenced. They started making whiskey. They put their own twists on the, on the way they make the whiskey. And over time, they developed the whiskey industry first domestically and then in the last 15, 20 years internationally that has been incredibly successful. The problem is they've been so successful that they're out of old whiskey. So now most of the distilleries have no old stock left. Everybody knows about, you know, Yamazaki 24. Guess what? You can't find Yamazaki 24. One of my favorite whiskeys of all time is Nika 17 Takatsuro Pure Malt. Beautiful bottle. If you can find it, it's six dollars $800 a bottle at this point. So the Japanese producers are sat back and they're very good at marketing and they're very good at differentiation. They've said, all right, how do we reinvent ourselves? Which is sort of what we're all trying to do, right? We're all trying to get a new angle on the market. So Suntory has come up with the first of, of many releases of what they call their world whiskey. And this is their blending of Japanese whiskey with whiskey sourced elsewhere in the world to come up with a unique, premium, but very standardized product that they can export to the world that will have a Japanese identity, but that is not old Japanese whiskey. Next, you have my friends at Nika. One of the oldest operating distilleries in Japan is Nika Yoichi. Yoichi, they are now making these three bottles. These are all very, very specifically distilled to have certain flavor profiles. There's woody and vanillic, there's peaty and salty, and there's, what is it, sherry sweet. Each of these three whiskeys, they're sold as a set or they're sold independently, are very young whiskeys, but that have distinct different flavors, if you will, by the way they're distilled, so that the consumer will go, ooh, I want to try this, I want to try that, I want to try that. And then last but not least, you've got Matsui. 
And Matsui has gone in and they've made young whiskeys. And what they've done is they've very selectively have used casks that are atypical. So the one that I find really intriguing, which is aged in a cherry wood cask. So cherry wood is a very hard, very dense wood that is not typically used for aging spirit. And if you notice, that whiskey is almost yellow. It's barely got any color. So that's because the wood is so dense, it's hard for the whiskey to leach things out of it. But what that wood does is it also gives it a very distinct flavor note that no other whiskey in the world has, which means that they can now premiumize it and they can sell it as a premium product that people are going to want to try because it's something unique. Now they're doing this, I think they've got 12 or 14 different expressions with different woods now, and it's allowing them to take much, much, much younger whiskey and get it on the market and still maintain a, a premium or ultra premium position in the whiskey market. So, as we've talked about, innovation is key, but innovation comes with challenges. So as the market changes, all of us need to market differentiate, continue to innovate, but the challenge that comes along with innovation is customer education. Back to American single malt. A lot of people have no clue what an American single malt is, and they have no clue what an American single malt is supposed to taste like. So what we as producers need to do is we need to find a way, since we're making something that's other than the whiskeys that have typically been made in our own markets, or we're making whiskey in markets that haven't had whiskey before, we need to go out and we need to do a little bit of education on how the customer drinks it, what the customer knows about it, how it's used in cocktails, and that means a combination of marketing, brand development, feet on the street, and education and events just like this. Hi everyone, it's Emily again. We really appreciate you tuning in for this episode and hope you found it valuable. This podcast is produced by Emmett Strack and co-hosted by me, Emily Pennington, and Andres Correa. If you like the show, we'd love to hear your feedback. The best way to do that is to give us a rating or leave a review on your preferred platform. If you're interested in getting involved with the podcast, send us an email at psu at parkstreet.com, which is also listed in the show notes. You can find more educational materials on our website, parkstreet.com, or YouTube channel, search Park Street University. Thanks a lot, and cheers until next time.